Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter Liu. And I'm Jen Lee, and we are pediatric gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And my name is Jason Silverman, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. Today, we are super excited to talk to Dr. Glenn Furuta, the one and only, about eosinophilic esophagitis. Dr. Furuta is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado. He is the director of the GI eosinophilic diseases program there and a Lakash Endowed Chair for GI Allergic and Immunologic Diseases. He's also director of research for the Digestive Health Institute at Children's Hospital of Colorado. And as all of our listeners know, of course, the eosinophilic esophagitis is a common condition managed by pediatric gastroenterologists now, but it wasn't that long ago where it was viewed with a bit of skepticism about whether this was a true disorder uh, or not. And there's been some controversies over time with regards to how you diagnose it and some changes uh, as far as that goes. So we'll be talking to Dr. Furuta about all of that today and uh, really excited to hear what he has to say. Dr. Furuda, hey. thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bowel Sounds. It's a pleasure to be here today. Appreciate the invitation. For our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Yeah, as a, as a physician scientist, I really feel like I have a privilege of caring for patients who have eosinophilic GI diseases and asking them questions about what the barriers to care are so we can do impactful research to help them improve their lives. Before we get into our topic of eosinophilic esophagitis, or EOE, we heard through the grapevine that you have a unique way of getting to work. Can you tell us about that? On our campus here, we have a number of different buildings that uh, we work in, and so I wanted to do something that was going to be fun, as well as get a little exercise, so I have a scooter, and I get to cross campus, and that's uh, really a lot of fun. In fact, many of my colleagues here now have adapted the same thing in the in our GI group. Uh, but I heard there's a special thing on the scooter also. Oh, true. So I am a <laughs> University of Texas Longhorn fan. No offense to OSU there, but uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. I, I do love the Longhorns. I have a, a Longhorn on my uh, the front handles. So this, just to make sure, this is not an electric scooter. This is a man-powered scooter. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Oh, Human-powered okay. scooter. That's right. Very nice. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, now, now, I'm a little dis- now. now I'm a little disappointed that we don't have video content for this oh, podcast yeah. and we can't share video of you zipping around uh, <laughs> on the campus true. on your scooter. Yeah. I came incredible. to the lab one day and the uh, my the lab members had decorated it with the with the long ones. I just had the scooter originally and then they decorated it with that. So it's, uh, oh wow. Yeah, That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. As most of us in the GI world know, you know, so you've been involved in the study of eosinophilic GI disorders from really the the beginning of our of our kind of community's interest in in these disorders. Can we start uh, our discussion by first kind of talking about what eosinophilic esophagitis is and how our understanding of EOE has evolved over over time? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I think it's. I think about it in four chapters with several themes associated with it. I think there was uh, the number of chapters from the standpoint of identifying the disease, having a diagnostic criteria, this PPI responsive era, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, I think, later. And then now the current concepts of it being an inflammatory disease. The, the themes to me really revolve around 
this being an allergic disease and potentially now an inflammatory disease. Uh, second, that it was really defined by clinical experiences, but now we have a much, much broader and deeper sense of data that support what we do clinically. And then finally, this was a disease that was uh, really captured, I think, in academic communities, but now has broadened to a very international scope. So if you think back to um, the identification of the disease was in the early 1990s, Dr. Atwood and Strauman had written seminal articles on the clinical descriptions of adults who had this disease. And, um, and from there, there was a, a number of different studies that emerged describing the clinical, clinical entity, but there were no diagnostic criteria. And so as a function of that, this is a, a great intersection of academic societies with investigators. NASP, again, helped to sponsor the first international Congress to look at diagnostic criteria. And it's a year-long run-in to review the clinical experience in the very limited literature. And that diagnostic criteria was published in gastroenterology in 2007. Thereafter, there was uh, the, the criteria really developed to help develop research studies and make sure there was a level playing field of who was going to be entering into research studies so we could build a platform to make better clinical decisions on. And as clinical experience uh, continued, the use of PPIs to help identify who the patients were developed this kind of concept of, of PPI responsive esophageal eosinophilia, which was a, um, a problem clinically <clears throat> because we really didn't know who those patients were. And there was a second Congress that really helped to determine that even more clearly. And I think presently, we're really in a phase now where eosinophilic esophagitis is being thought of more as, uh, I think, as an inflammatory disease. It probably has a number of different endotypes and a number of different kinds of patients that very classic disease that was described by Dr. Leah Kouris, Hugh Sampson, Kevin Kelly, that patients had a allergies, food allergies, inflammation, and it resolved with an elemental formula has been broadened out to probably having patients who may have not as much of an atopic phenotype, but still have those eosinophils there, may result either in stricturing disease, may have a, a topical responsive element to it, or other phenotypes. So I think we've gone through this series of, of chapters in helping to identify who those are. I think in thinking about the pathogenesis, though, it is quite interesting because not just as an allergic disease and as an inflammatory disease, a number of very basic investigations now have gone on to help us understand what the mechanisms are, what the genes are, certainly the work by Dr. Rothenberg in Cincinnati, and here locally, Dr. Spencer Lisa Spencer has been doing some really landmark work identifying how eosinophils get to the intestinal tract and to the esophagus that are going to help us understand therapeutic targets. Yeah, that's great. I mean, as a young gastroenterologist, I can't imagine practicing pediatric GI without EOE. Yeah, so I wanted to ask about that. So Dr. Faruda, like as a pediatric gastroenterologist, you know, in the 90s when this was all starting to become better recognized, how did you personally first get kind of interested in it and then develop this career studying these disorders? You know, my, my career is really based on trying to understand what the barriers to care are and how we can improve on that. And when I was a first year fellow, Esther Israel, my attending at the time, sat down with me at a microscope as we were looking at slides of a patient who had um, dysphagia and dense esophageal eosinophilia, something we really had not seen previously and said, you know what? This is a problem. We don't know who these patients are. We don't know how to take care of them. 
We don't know how to make the diagnosis, and uh, we need to understand things better. I'd entered the laboratory to do work on mast cell cytokine work with Dr. Barry Warshall, and as a function of that, was able to tease out both a, a basic interest, a, a research uh, focus, as well as a clinical niche that uh, was needed and I think was was uh, very uh, interesting and, and fun to be a part of. Um, and thanks for that a really great overview uh, you gave earlier in terms of that sort of uh, the history and the background of uh, eosinophilic disorders and how they've uh, changed over time. And you mentioned um, some uh, some of the criteria. Maybe you can t- kind of drill down and give a little bit more details about um, just kind of a summary of the most recent guidelines for diagnosing EOE. So the, the most recent the guidelines for diagnosing EOE really focus on going back to our core skills of being a doctor. I think originally we had thought about you need to have symptoms and then you need to have a, uh, a trial of medication and then you need to have a, a, uh, a biopsy that showed this. But, but in fact, that created a, a problem in, in the sense of who the patients were and how to take care of them later. And so currently the, the diagnostic criteria based on you need to have a set of symptoms referable to esophageal dysfunction and a biopsy sample that showed shows increased numbers of eosinophils in the esophageal mucosa. There are a number of other uh, factors that could contribute to that type of inflammation. Those need to be ruled out, although uh, reflux is one, but the others are quite rare and should be able to be uh, um, ruled out as part of history and physical examination. So poor symptoms, abnormal biopsy, ruling out other causes. Uh, What are the steps that uh, the physician should be taking to rule out those other conditions? we think about the causes, reflux is the most common and going to be the most obvious by history by history and physical. A lot of these things also are, are a function of age as you're thinking about them. So we can have the toddlers, school-age children, adolescents, and teenagers. And I'd start with the adolescents and teenagers because they have a very characteristic features of dysphagia and, and food impaction. Uh, the school-age children may have reflux-like symptoms, and then the, the toddlers may have feeding dysfunction. So there's a symptom profile that may fit each one of those and really relate back to trying to rule out what the causes of those underlying symptoms might be. I think um, we want to rule out stricture. So an upper GI series or an esophagram is going to be critical for that. Reflux typically can be ruled out either with a trial of PPIs or with a pH probe if needed. But historically, depending on that age group, you should be able to tease that out. Again, going back to being a doctor. And then I think the other things such as celiac disease, uh, inflammatory bowel diseases, connective tissue diseases, those should be able to be ruled out, again, by history and physical or uh, appropriate testing. Celiac disease and eosinophilic esophagitis specifically, I maybe I'm mistaken, but I thought that the two entities often coexisted. Is that not true? Yeah, and I think this goes back again to uh, thinking about inflammation. And so if you have celiac disease, which I think is very well characterized, not a question about what that is from either biopsy, uh, antibody testing, and and symptoms, genetic testing, you may have esophageal eosinophilia. What that is, whether it's secondary to reflux, whether it's secondary to allergy to wheat, or whether it's a secondary finding of having two separate diseases, I don't think is entirely clear yet. About half the patients who have esophageal eosinophilia and have celiac disease will respond to a gluten-free diet. So 
I think, again, it goes back to following the patient over time. Oftentimes, it's an asymptomatic finding. And I can just think last week, the endoscopy patient, abnormal um, titers, uh, characteristic findings, endoscopically, histologically, or celiac, also had some exudates, had no symptoms referable to the esophagus. And I think those are the patients that pose a little bit more of a clinical conundrum. In this year, uh, Iko Hirano, adult gastroenterologist, Northwestern, and I published a uh, a management article that was in gastroenterology that talks about a number of these different comorbid conditions that may occur with esophageal eosinophilia and thinking about how to uh, tease those out and, and care for the patients. So another area I'd like to spend some more time on is the role of proton pump inhibitors in the diagnosis and treatment of EOE. You briefly mentioned that in your history, but can you describe what the state of the art regarding PPIs in EOE is today? Sure. You know, I think thinking about PPIs does require going back into the, the history of this and, and bringing this up to date. When the original consensus guidelines are written in 2007, I still remember the phone call that had probably 30 people on there to say, how do we make sure that reflux is not causing this inflammation? And the adult gastroenterologists who were on the call said, you know, pH probes have too many problems. The only way to do this is by using a two-month trial of PPIs to eliminate acid as an underlying cause. And so it was adapted as a part of the diagnostic evaluation. I think over time, what was found is that patients who had a very characteristic presentation of food impaction or dysphagia in adolescents or adults would have esophageal eosinophilia. They were put onto proton pump inhibitors and everything went away. The tissue got better, the symptoms got better, and there was an emerging concern that actually PPIs were treating this underlying inflammation, perhaps by reducing acid, but was there another mechanism? And as a part of that, there have been basic investigations that have shown that PPIs also may have an anti-inflammatory effect by reducing the um, production of eotaxin-3, which is one of the key chemokines that allows eosinophils to go into the esophageal mucosa. So in fact, the PPIs may be treating this esophageal eosinophilia in patients who have an underlying condition called eosinophilic esophagitis. So um, PPIs presently can be used to treat reflux in patients who have EOE can be used as a potential first-line treatment in patients who seem to have a clinical phenotype of EOE and, um, and reduces the inflammation also there. I would just revolve back to one other really important thing to think about. The classic form of EOE is an allergic type of disease in which food antigens seem to spark this inflammation. Dr. Leah Chris was one of the key figures in, in helping us to understand that through the use of elemental formulas and, and understanding that clinical association. I think what we're seeing, as I said, this inflammatory type of disease. Now, there are probably different groups of EOE, and so some may respond to PPIs, some may respond to elemental formulas, some may respond to biologics, some respond to the topical steroids. So we're seeing a, a cast of different approaches. You know, we oftentimes will see these patients with dysphagia who are already on a PPI, um, you know, especially with this move towards trying to diagnose eosinophilic esophagitis and seeing PPI as like a treatment rather than a test beforehand. If they've already been on a PPI, how do you approach that patient? Like, do you ask them to stop the PPI and then scope, or do you just go ahead and scope and see what you find? Um, how does that play into your diagnosis? 
Yeah, so it is a complicated question. It's one of the reasons I think that we've tried to remove PPIs from from that diagnostic aspect of things. And I think it goes back to maybe how do you evaluate a patient who comes in with a symptom and what is the differential diagnosis and how do you want to try to arrive at that, that diagnosis. But a practical clinical question is patient, adolescent patient had dysphagia, had some food sticking, maybe had some reflux symptoms, got put on PPIs, and now is in your office. What should you do? I think there are two forks you can have for that. One is to say, you're symptomatic now. Let's go ahead and do this endoscopy on, on your proton pump inhibition. The other is to remove that, get you off of that for uh, four to eight weeks, and then see what the endoscopy shows after that. It ends up being a very clinical question because depending on how severe the symptoms are, patients may not be able to stand being off of their PPIs for that period of time. I would say just to retreat back, if the symptom that the presentation was um, based on was dysphagia, I would get an esophagram first because the esophagram may identify the structural findings such as a stricture. And if that's present, it's going to modify my approach to doing the endoscopy. If there was an narrowing, I would just go ahead and do the endoscopy at the time of yeah. At the time while they're on the PPIs. Yeah, that makes sense. The other things I think to consider on that are um, the family history. If you have a family history of uh, a number of folks who are, have had strictures, have had food impactions, may have had EOE, um, whether they have a number of atopic conditions, whether they've had other things that may be present that, that should be, um, would tilt me more, more one way to think about whether or not that's the case. Going further into a discussion on treatment, um, so in a prior podcast that you had done, which was excellent as well, you had kind of summarized the treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis using the four Ds. Can you tell us what that is and, and yeah, what those Ds stand for? Sure. Yeah, so I think it, it helps in, in thinking about this with and presenting it to families, gives them a way to think about also what the different kinds of treatments can be, and they include uh, diet, drugs dilation. And then the last that we've adopted most recently is decreasing dysphagia. And I'll come back to that at the very end. But uh, dietary therapy, as you know, is excluding the potential food allergens that may be present. Studies suggest effectiveness somewhere between 70 to 90% of the time. The pluses for using dietary management are that you may be able to uh, just have a, a one approach to this. If you can identify what that allergen is, downsides or potential impact on quality of life, uh, cost, uh, things like that, and, and malnutrition. So we always have a dietitian work with our patients. Uh, drugs are uh, the topical steroids. Uh, systemic steroids are really rarely used in the care of patients, but topical steroids in the form of either the meter dose inhaler or the oroviscus budesonide. There currently is a drug, uh, budesonide is available in Europe and has been approved for use in Europe as a, as a topical steroid also. Downsides include uh, absorption, systemic suppression, local infections, um, and the pluses are that, again, effective somewhere between 70 to 9% of the time and can be convenient, taken twice a day. Dilation is something that the adult our adult colleagues have taught us an awful lot about. They, um, I, I think it's different than the classic peptic disease, which many of us is pediatricians are not as familiar with because PPIs have been around so long. We're not seeing peptic strictures to the same degree anymore, but dilation is quite effective if done sequentially. So not uh, to the point where we've maximized the diameter of the esophagus, but as soon as we see a rent to stop and have the patients come back again, um, quite effective in uh, 
decreasing symptoms and side effects really of uh, perforation bleeding infection typical with with um, uh, with any kind of endoscopic procedure. Perforation risks are quite low with this. And recent work from Rob Kramer, police Mark Ketcher, Jake uh, Mark from our group has shown that uh, less than you know one percent time that we would see that uh, type of, of problem. And then I bring up the dis decreasing dysphagia because often patients, because these symptoms have been so prolonged, have developed a, a method of eating or an approach to have coping mechanisms and just don't want to eat. They, they're very concerned about getting a pill stuck. They're very concerned about having a food impaction. And so we have um, had our feeding therapist, and, and I've learned so much from our feeding therapist here about how to really uh, coach the patients through understanding that they can eat, uh, actually can swallow pills, had discussions about is pill swallowing a life skill, and I think we agree with it would be yes. And so helping our patients to understand how to swallow those pills after they've had so many problems is, is really important. Um, just following up really quick on something you said. So you mentioned, so oral viscous pedestinide in Europe uh, was approved. Is there like a, I know that people were working on a formulation where we didn't have to mix it. Um, like a lozenge. Yeah. Or like already like a liquid form that to, to swallow. Is that what's coming down the pipeline for that? Or are we going to still be asking families to mix on their own for the foreseeable future. Well, I thought the one in Europe was a lozenge if I'm, okay. if I'm not mistaken, but yes, yeah, so the one in Europe is a lozenge. It's a, um, it's easy to take. I was over there and, uh, got to see what it looked like and is a, a great solution. The one here is a suspension under study been shown to be effective. We're waiting anxiously for that to be released. And that, quite sure what all the holdups are, but boy, it, it sure will be a important thing for our patients to have. So they're not doing these home brews of things at home. Um, so maybe drilling a little bit more down into dietary, uh, into therapy and specifically dietary therapy, you mentioned it can be quite challenging and, and it's helpful to have, or essential to have a dietitian working with you. Um, and it can be really challenging with patients there are lots of approaches to take. Uh, I know some centers will go straight to a six-food elimination diet. Other centers may take a more targeted approach, either with or without doing allergy testing. And of course, there's issues around how helpful allergy testing is anyway. So can you comment on what, what do you think is the best way to approach uh, dietary therapy? And, and you know, how do you approach that discussion? with patients and their families? So I think one of the things about thinking about dietary management is individualizing this for a family and then discussing with them what the results of studies might be. So if you said, geez, we want to really limit the impact of, on quality of life, let's start with eliminating dairy only. The results of that suggest there may be only a 50% response. Whereas if they said, we want to really be very aggressive, a six-food elimination diet, it may be that up to 70% or more patients may respond. So different approaches depending on what the conversation is with that family. I like to think about treatment in the context of three chapters or ages, zero to six years, seven to 12, and then 13 and up. The zero to six, the families have a lot of control over what goes on. They're not as socialized. They're able to control diet and, and may be able to institute a dietary approach easier. As you become more social, that six to 12 year age may be somewhat more challenging if you have a patient you're seeing at that time. And so dietary management maybe somewhat more complex, but again, something important to discuss. And then 13 and up, there probably are bigger battles that you want to fight than eliminating certain foods. 
Some patients still are very focused on that, but we just want to make sure it's something that's going to be good for the patient as well as the family and not make the disease, the treatment worse than the disease. Yeah, I think that's tough. I think a lot of my patients end up choosing corticosteroids because dairy especially is such a big part of their lifestyle. So when we talk about this lifelong disease and giving patients topical corticosteroids, and you mentioned some of the possible long-term consequences, you recently published a paper in JPGN that found only a small percent of gastroenterologists are screening for adrenal insufficiency. So can you talk a little bit about that? What is the risk of adrenal insufficiency and should we be screening everybody? Yes, for every uh, everything that we do, as, as I had indicated before, we think about what the barriers to care are. And every family comes in with a certain set of, I think, either preconceived or well-thought-out concerns. One of those has been steroids. And as a buzzword, uh, very concerned about the use of steroids and the side effects that may be incurred with that. And so to try to address that, we've done uh, a, a couple studies now. The first study was actually looking at how often patients may have biochemical evidence of adrenal insufficiency after being on steroids. And we looked at 105 patients, five of those patients actually had biochemical evidence of adrenal insufficiency by morning cortisol levels. Uh, the patients had uh, initial tests that was abnormal if it was abnormal or repeated. And then they went under one adrenal <clears throat> stem test and, and it was five, none of whom were symptomatic. So that was reassuring to us that we're probably not seeing a huge absorption. Those five we're also on other topical steroids, either inhaling it for asthma, snorting it for their allergic rhinitis. The second study that you had discussed was a survey to look at how often, patient, uh, how often providers are really screening. I think it is somewhat low, probably because um, it, it does not seem like it's as much of a concern because of this, uh, this first pass effect. As you swallow it, it goes to the liver, it's metabolized, and I think that's what's really borne out now. So one interesting problem, I think, in like a clinical scenario that I feel like we all see fairly regularly is sometimes patients no longer have any symptoms, but their scopes still show that there's some esophageal eosinophilia. How do you usually approach that scenario, um, especially for, you know, maybe a teenager who, if they feel fine, it's hard to, they don't feel as motivated, mm -hmm. I think, to adhere to treatment. Like, how do you usually approach that? It's, so it's a discussion. I think there's two really important things to consider in, in working with patients who have this disease. One is shared decision-making. So there's a recent article by Joy Chang at the University of Michigan that showed that only about 50% of patients who have EOE are involved in shared decision-making. And as a part of our multidisciplinary group, we really do try to spend time to discuss those aspects of what the treatment may look like and why we're doing that. So to have an in-depth discussion, I think I'm really lucky to be able to work and, and be protected to do those kinds of things. And as part of a busy practice, it may not always be available, but I think having either written material or things that can help inform patients of, of why it's important uh, to continue taking treatment is critical. We often will have the discussion with patients about um, the fact that like Although not as severe as diabetes or hypertension, there may not be symptoms associated with this, but the long-standing impact of chronic inflammation could lead to problems with scarring or narrowing of food impaction. So I think having a pretty open discussion about the, those things is, is pretty important. Yeah. 
what I usually tell patients is, you know, even though you don't feel it over time, it may not be like in a couple of years and maybe five to 10 years, there's a chance of strictures um, developing. Is that kind of what you focus on? Um, like as the, the primary long-term complication that we're worried about? Right. So I, I think that is, I, I think there are three things that we think about. One is food impactions, two is stricture formation, and three is malnutrition. Malnutrition rarely occurs, but can occur sometimes, I think, because patients develop so much of a coping mechanism, they are able to get enough nutrition down. Food impactions, I think a, a major message is that it's the probably, in my experience, the number one cause of food impactions in ER is going to be eosinophilic esophagitis, something as you know, in the middle of the night, we don't want to be taking out because of the potential for complications associated with that. But strictures are the things that we discuss. And I think what we don't have today is a way to predict that. Work by a policeman, our catcher here, look, using the endo flip, I think is going to help us provide some, some markers. I think there may be genetic markers that are also going to be able to help us in those uh, discussions with families and patients. But uh, indeed, that is uh, the, the thing that we talk about quite often. When we're when we're talking about that initial endoscopy uh, for suspected EOE to make the diagnosis, where should we be taking these biopsies, and how many should we be taking? And do you need to stick with those same locations and numbers on follow up scopes as well? You know what what I hope happens in the next several years is that the the use of biopsies or the value may diminish a little bit. And we actually use our eyes and what we see endoscopically to also make some of the decisions. There is a, a EREFS is a, a system, a validated system to look at the mucosa and actually characterize what the features are. When we think about biopsies, it's about you know, 0.01% of the total surface area making huge decisions on and this. So I think looking is, is really important. But to your point, the diagnostic accuracy has been looked at primarily by the Northwestern Group, Josh Wexler, Nimi Gonsalves, Iko Hirano, Amir Kagawala. It shows three biopsies, uh, top and bottom, proximal and distal, are, are above 90% for the standpoint of diagnostic accuracy. I think in addition to that, targeting areas that may look abnormal is important too, and specifically the white exudates, which are eosinophil rich. So moving on to another endoscopic topic, I think has been a really big hot topic lately. And this is the idea of using transnasal endoscopies. Can you first of all, explain what it is and what role you think it will play moving forward? As a part of trying to knock down those barriers to care, Joel Friedlander has been a, a trailblazer in this area. We knew that patients did not like to undergo endoscopy, and we knew parents were concerned about sedation. And so as a result of that, Joel has uh, developed the transnasal endoscopy that now Natalie Nguyen is, is continuing in those efforts. So transnasal endoscopy uses a smaller scope. It goes through the nose in an unsedated patient. It takes less time than a traditional endoscopy, has a decreased cost, and through studies that Joel has performed shows that the size of the mucosal biopsy is not statistically different than the size of a traditional endoscopic biopsy. So we're able to get the same type of diagnostic appearance. We're also able to get a, a, a gross appearance of the mucosa, so he's able to do EREF scores on that. And it has been very embraced by, I would say, most patients who do this. It does require certain, I think, uh, uh, personality to undergo that in a, uh, a sedated, unsedated fashion. Joel, if you met him, is such a 
uh, charismatic guy that he is certainly able to, I think, coach patients through that. But we have had some patients who have gone through this up to six, seven times now. I've heard about, I've never actually seen a presentation about the esophageal string test, but, uh, but I know that you, you've talked about this in the past. Can, can you explain what it is and how it's being used and where it fits in sort of the spectrum of diagnosis or follow-up for EOE? Again, going back to barriers to care, we want to try to reduce the impact of, of sedated endoscopies. And this was a way to potentially assess the esophageal mucosa without having to do uh, an endoscopic procedure. We, and, and I want to just declare that I am developer of this. We're seeking to commercialize this as a test now to monitor disease activity, not as a diagnostic, but to monitor disease activity. So this goes back to uh, medical school days and thinking about a test called um, the Entra test. It was originally developed as a test to uh, identify small intestinal parasites. There was a Tylenol-sized capsule filled with a string. Trailing edge of that string was came out of the end of the capsule. The, uh, the string was taped to the cheek. The capsule was swallowed. It left a trailing string in the esophagus, stomach, and small intestine. The capsule was dislodged in the, in the small intestine, excreted in the feces, and the string stayed in place. The string was then pulled out after a period of time, and the small intestinal portion was assayed for intestinal parasites. We wondered whether, in fact, we could capture esophageal luminal contents that may be reflective of esophageal inflammation. We've completed two studies now looking at different dwell times for that um, string, compared what was present in the, muc in the mucus, so essentially a liquid biopsy for eosinophil granule proteins, what was present in an esophageal biopsy that was present at the same time and showed there was a high degree of correlation between eosinophil markers on the string, in particular major basic protein, eosinophil uh, neotaxin, and those same um, products in the esophageal biopsy. So this provides us as, with a way of monitoring the um, esophageal histology, in essence, through a liquid biopsy in a min minimally invasive way. One test that I think everyone should consider to use more is the esophagram. And, and we've had two studies that I think have been really impactful by Natalie Nguyen and Cleese Marrakech that have looked at both the ability of the esophagram to detect strictures. And 55% of the time, the stricture was not identified endoscopically, visually, but was identified by the esophagram. And the second study looked at the ability of the pill to identify dysmotility or uh, pill hang-up. And those are really important because I think the type of strictures that are present in the eosinophilic esophagitis relate to probably more of a longitudinal narrowing as opposed to an isolated stricture. And so it may be missed um, because of the way that that stricture has been formed. So esophagram can be really helpful in, in assessing patients who have dysphagia, planning for uh, endoscopic procedures, necessity for uh, dilation. Yeah. So, can, uh, can you bring us up to speed on where we are with biologics in the treatment of EOE? We have been really fortunate, I think, to have a lot of inroads into understanding the, the underlying pathogenesis of EOE that's led to identification of novel therapeutic targets and thus the use of biologics that have been used for other eosinophil-related diseases. And so uh, anti-IL-5, anti-IL-4, anti-IL-13 are three of the primary targets. I had told my wife I thought I would never see an eosinophil in Sports Illustrated, but indeed, now that these uh, 
these biologics are being used for asthma and eczema and other things. The advertisements are prolific. And yesterday in clinic, I had a, a father who said the same thing to me. I'm seeing eosinophils in, on the TV. I'm seeing them on the news. My son sent me a picture of a TV ad that had an eosinophil on there. So we are benefiting from the fact that this disease affects adults. So there's been much more industry engagement now in these diseases. And so the development of products that are targeting these specific cytokines that are relevant to eosinophilic pathways are proliferating. There are studies going on now for esophagitis that are very, very promising. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to have those for use in patients. And the side effect profiles appears to be quite minimal. I mean, I will have to say, compared to other cell types, I do think the eosinophil is quite pretty. <laughs> it is. Yeah. yeah. Pink, Absolutely. it's purple, there's polka dots. I yeah. mean, it's very it's cute. Colorful. All right. <laughs> so, um, so thank you again so much for spending so much time with us. You know, one question that we've been asking everybody that we've been talking to, um, what do you think is the best advice you've received in your career thus far? And, you know, do you have any advice for trainees or junior faculty who are listening? So I've been really, really fortunate to work with a lot of great people in my time in Boston at Baylor College of Medicine and and here, and I think the, the two words I always talk about are be there. It, it's probably no more true now than ever. We are pulled so many different directions to do so many different things that the ability to have focus, and whether it's with our patients, whether it's with our families, whether it's with our research, whatever we're doing to have that kind of unfettered uh, view of, of, of what you're doing at the time is really important. So to try to develop systems in place and a mental ability to be there in, in the moment and enjoy it and not embrace that moment so you're not feeling like you have to be doing something else. I think caring for the patient is really important as opposed to just providing patient care. The fine line, fine distinction, but we have become so uh, attached to our electronics and, and electronic health record and things that the ability to engage with the patient and care for that patient is, is, is so important. And, and I think finding your passion and working with great people is, is just a, a critical part. Like I said, from the early 90s to now, I've had a great fortune to work with some really amazing people. And I was talking to Chris Lee, of course, about this the other day, that, wow, this has been a really fun ride to, to do together and, and maintain this friendship as well as a, a productive uh, type of, of uh, environment. That's great. Um, just because we're our time is coming to an end, are, do you have any final words for our listeners? I, so, again, this is a young disease in the context of of all diseases, and it is a disease that I think pediatricians and pediatric gastroenterologists should take a lot of pride in helping to develop. This was originally identified by a couple of adult gastroenterologists who are amazing and still involved in the field, Dr. Stroman and Atwood. But it was not recognized until pediatricians really helped to do this. NASPIN was critical. Margaret Stallings helped us put on that first conference. And, and so there's a platform that was built around this. John Barnard had pushed us to apply for this U54 mechanism to help support the consortium. And so there has been a, a, a growth because of pediatricians. And I think there has been a multidisciplinary engagement between adult and pediatrics, allergy pathology. And, and feeding nutrition to help build this area. And I think the reason that, that there has been progress made is there has not been 
a, a kind of a, a castle approach. People have really helped to build this sequentially. So it's a great area to be involved in. Um, really uh, fun and engaging. And I invite all colleagues to, to come join. Thanks again so much for, for being with us today and, and taking so much time to share all of your experience. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a privilege for me. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on our upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there is a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspigan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye.